This is Janice Senor, and you're watching the TV Writer Podcast. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web. My name is Gray Jones, and I want to welcome you to the TV Writer Podcast, partner of Script Magazine, episode 55 for Friday, May 4th, 2012. Well, today I have the privilege of bringing you an interview with Canadian showrunner, creator, and executive producer, Jana Senor. I saw her at the Toronto Screenwriting Conference recently, and she had an excellent session, and it's such a privilege to have her here today. Now, Jana Senor most recently created the critically acclaimed Being Erica, which has been nominated for 16 Gemini Awards, winning three. It ran for four seasons and has been exported around the world. And before that, she created Dark Oracle, which won an International Emmy Award for Best Youth Drama. So it's a very cool interview. You're going to love it. We'll get to it in a second. Um, you know, she's not the first Canadian writer that we've had on the podcast. And I do want to invite you to go to tvwriterpodcast.com. There's lots of great interviews with uh, Canadian writers like Sherry Elwood, who was the creator of Call Me Fitz, Wills Mack, Karen Walton, Matt McLennan, Ali Adler, David Diaz, Jenica Harper, Andrea Moody, Tim Stubinsky, and Dagan Frickland are a ton of Canadian writers that you've got to check out. And even for the American viewers, there's a lot to learn from these Canadian writers because you know what? We do things differently. And in some ways, there's things that you can learn from this different approach to television writing. And also, there's more Canadian writers coming, including showrunners from Justified, who is a Canadian showrunner, Flashpoint, L.A. Complex, King, and lots more. So, great, great stuff. Stay tuned at tvwriterpodcast.com. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Gray Jones is my handle. But right now, on to my interview with Jana Senor. Enjoy. Stick around after the interview for a demonstration video of new sponsor Lens Baby's products. If you've ever seen really cool-looking focus effects, they're probably from a Lens Baby lens. This is Gray, and I'm here with showrunner, creator, and executive producer Jana Senor. How you doing, Jana? I'm great, Gray. How are you? I'm doing really well, thanks. And boy, I really, really appreciated your session in the Toronto Screenwriting Conference uh, last week. And uh, I got a lot out of it. And wow, I, I can't believe already you're on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, it feels like it just happened. It was uh, a little anxiety provoking for me, but a lot of fun. Yeah. Now, this, this is actually going to be released a few weeks later uh, sometime in May, but uh, it was a tremendous session, and I think definitely people would do well to mark the 2013 dates in their calendar. Um, and we'll we'll talk about that a little bit. I think you, you have some thoughts on, on that kind of thing. But uh, first, we want to hear your story. Um, you didn't originally want to be a writer. Where, where, tell me about growing up, and, and at what point did you decide you wanted to be a writer? Growing up, I wanted to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. And I did not get into teacher's college, so that was not going to work out. I went to McGill and I majored in Christianity. Mm -hmm. And being Jewish, that also wasn't really going to lead me anywhere professionally. Mm -hmm. I wasn't even really going to be able to get a job teaching Christianity uh -huh. um, because they want Christians to teach Christianity, understandably. Yeah. So I got a job at a call center 
following Miguel and was pretty unhappy. Mm. Spent about eight months there and got to a place where I was quite desperate trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. Wow. I didn't grow up, I mean, I grew up watching television, but I, I didn't, I wasn't super into television mm-hmm. um, or movies, but I'd always been a good writer, like I'd done well at creative writing. And uh, it was very sort of dramatic experience where very late one night I was working a 24-hour shift rotation, um, so I was there until, I was there at like four in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I was very unhappy and sad and worried and 21 years old and worried about the future. And I made a list of what I wanted in my life and what I was good at, like what my skills were. Mm -hmm. And on one side of the list, I had my skills, which were... I spoke a lot of languages, mm-hmm. which is what had landed me at a call center job in the first place. Yeah. And I was very friendly, and I don't think I had much else except for that I was, uh, oh, I knew a lot about Christianity. That was mm-hmm. on there also. Yeah. And I did well at writer's craft in high school. Uh, I was good at creative writing. Yeah. And on the other side, um, I had my hopes and dreams, which were I wanted to do something creative. I wanted to make a lot of money. I didn't want to be tied to a desk. I wanted to be free. And yeah, I think that was it. And and so I spent some time thinking about this and looking around and decided that screenwriting was the only thing that fit, like the only link between my, my categories. Mm-hmm. So I enrolled in a continuing education course at Ryerson. Yeah. And the rest is kind of history. I mean, it's kind of a long story, but it, that's where it, that's where it began. It began with that continuing education course. Wow. Now, what, now one, one detail you, you, you missed there is that you're Jewish, but you were studying Christian studies. How did, how did that happen? <laughs> well, I didn't know anything about Christianity. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I didn't know much beyond like the Garden of Eden. And, you know, I, I, well, I knew, I didn't know much about the Bible. I didn't, I wasn't, you know, I'm not religious. I wasn't raised religious, very mm-hmm. secular family. And I got to university and I, I don't know, I, I think I probably took a Judaism, Christianity and Islam, like entry level course. And I also met a girl who had been raised in a very religious a Christian household. And mm-hmm. I kind of like, fell in love with both of them. Like I, yeah. I was, she was so smart and I was so interested in this whole, in the theology and the history and all this stuff that I, I just didn't really know about. I just didn't really know anything about Jesus, mm-hmm. <laughs> the Bible. Yeah. And the university is a time in your life for exploring new things and going where you're, you're drawn, especially if you're doing a liberal arts degree, mm-hmm. uh, which I was. And, and that's where, that's what I was drawn to. And, you know, I spent four years doing like church history, biblical exegesis, women in Christian tradition, like, wow. uh, you know, and I was never, like, never interested from a faith perspective. So mm-hmm. I was never thinking about conversion. Yeah. You know, it was always the academic study of Christianity. You know, the sort of magic of, of religion and the Bible um, that appealed to me. Well, well um, and, and one of the reasons I ask is uh, I, I grew up with a Christian background, but I had a Jewish stepmother for 12 years. And uh, so I, I had this kind of dichotomy myself. And, and my first film back in 1993, I paired up with a, a Jewish director and we made a film called Shalom, I Believe in Jesus. <laughs> Oh, is that about who's that about? The, all about the uh, the the, the Jews, Jews for, Jesus? for Jesus movement and their counter missionary movement, the Jews for Judaism, and their clashes. Right. Yes. Yes. 
Yeah. No, but nothing stresses the Jews out more than the Jews for Jesus. Yeah. It's very, very threatening. <laughs> yeah. But I'm sure you know all about it because you did a film about it. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I bet. But anyway, we we digress a little bit. But actually, one more one, one more digression. I'm just totally curious. Which languages uh, do you speak? I don't ever use them. This whole thing about learning lots of languages because it's so useful. It's totally mm. not useful. Like, oh, I'm, I know. I'm totally anti like <laughs> immersion programs now. I speak French, Spanish, German, English, obviously, mm. and I sign fluently in American Sign Language. That is neat. Is that right? I, I I speak French, Spanish, German, and I started to learn sign when I was in university, but dropped it. Oh, look at you, Graham. <laughs> also multilingual. Yeah. You dropped American Sign Language, huh? Yeah. It's, it's tricky. It is a tough one to learn. You need like a deaf person who's going to like dedicate some serious time to you. I think I think it's tricky to kind of learn from classes. Because it's so different than a, a spoken language. Yeah, especially if you don't know somebody. Like I, I didn't actually know anybody who who could sign, and so it was all just theoretical. Um, so anyway, di- digression over. Let's get back to screen writing. So, um, so now I, I heard that WIFT was a part of the next part of your journey. Is that true? Yes. A lot of people have a background in film, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't. So I, I wrote this little short film, and then I went to WIFT. Nuts and they did a nuts and bolts thing mm-hmm. uh, it was like a weekend seminar and it was very I was very overwhelmed because I, I didn't know anything and I went to all the panels and it just seemed like a very big wide scary industry mm-hmm. and they had a contest to get somebody on Buffy to mentor you so oh, really from oh from Buffy yeah I loved Buffy Buffy was the first television show I wasn't into TV but in university I started watching Buffy mm-hmm. and there was something about something about the realism mixed with the campiness mixed with the fantasy this was super really really appealed to me has Mm. influenced like what i like and my style ever since and so that was very motivating so i entered this contest with the short that i wrote during the ryerson continuing education class and i won the mine got picked to work with who is up tracy forbes now my dear friend Mm -hmm. and so she began a very generous long-standing, years, years-long-standing relationship with me where she would talk to me and she would advise me and she story-edited my Buffy spec and she, you know, she's the one who suggested that I start in preschool, which mm-hmm. is how I started desperately, aggressively assaulting the producers of Sesame Park to give me a job. Uh-huh. I watched every Sesame Park. I wrote specs for Sesame Park. You know, it was kind of like a pick-a-little-known Canadian six-minute interstitial Muppet show, uh-huh. and you know, like kill yourself to write for, for them, yeah. which is which is what I did, and and that's how I got my first job. And I wrote eighteen drafts of the six-minute Sesame Park episode, uh-huh. and then not long after that, I got accepted to the Canadian Film Center. At this point, I thought I wanted to write features, and over the course of my time at the Film Center, I came to realize that I did not want to write features because, well, because there's no real like. It's not very lucrative to write features in Canada, (laughs) (laughs) to put it mildly, and there's no real industry. So I I switched to television, and then that's sort of, yeah, that's where I I was at the film center. Cool. And and now uh, there was a a film in 2001, A Man of Substance. That was my short from Ryerson. Oh, from Ryerson. Okay. Yeah, that was the one. So A Man of Substance is the short I wrote at Ryerson. It won a little award at Ryerson, and then... And then it's a short that I entered into the WIFT contest that made Tracy decide to mentor me. And then I actually made it. Mm -hmm. I directed it and learned that I 
will never direct again. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I, sh- I should mention for our American viewers, uh, WIFT is Women in Film and Television, and there's a Toronto chapter. There's other chapters as well, right? Yeah, I think so. I think, well, yeah, because WIFT is the one I was in with specifically the Toronto one. I think they're all yeah. over the country. Cool. And and now, um, at what point did you get representation, and, and how did you get representation? Was it around that time? It was after I left the film center. Mm-hmm. So I left the film center, and it was one of those kind of blessing in disguise type situations. I learned a lot at the film center, and uh, they were it was incredibly helpful experience. Mm-hmm. At the same time, there was a you moved on, so there was a two part program: the writers' lab followed by the professional screenwriting program. And I did not get accepted into the professional screenwriting program. Oh, okay. And the rest of my class carried on. Oh, and no. so suddenly I <laughs> I was sort of left unexpectedly. I hadn't anticipated this, this happening. Hmm. Not doing it, not meeting all of the people in the industry, not meeting the agents, not, you know, having the broadcasters come in. Like, they do a whole thing there where they really introduce you to everyone in the industry and you get a chance to practice pitching. I believe that's still, like, a big part of the, the primetime program mm-hmm. there. So I was very unhappy and lay on the couch <laughs> for a week without talking. And then I decided to follow along what they were doing by setting up my own meetings with the people they were meeting. Mm-hmm. And this led to some very wonderful things. Very cool. Yeah. So the Writers Guild put on a breakfast to mm-hmm. honor the nominees of something. Something they were being on Gemini nominees, maybe I don't know. It was it was people who were very high up, like showrunners and uh, executive producers, who were being writers who who were being um, feted at this breakfast. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, nobody showed up to fet them, oh, no. except for <laughs> a bunch of like newbies like myself. So you had this kind of sad breakfast with you know, 10 sort of clamoring new writers and a bunch of, like, showrunners. Uh-huh. So it was new writer heaven. And that's where I met Heather Conkey. Heather Conkey, who now runs uh, Heartland. Uh, she had a bit of a story, too. Uh, I I remember reading an interview somewhere that she hadn't even a, a planned on attending that, that night. Oh, interesting. Yes, I think I remember that. She hadn't even planned on attending. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and you just, oh, so what, you you hit it off and did you ask her if she, if she or, or you sent, sent her something to read, was it? Yes, uh, I started talking to her and I said I had these projects. I was, I was going around trying to pitch my projects. I had two projects or three projects at a time, a preschool and one hour and a half hour. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't get a meeting at all. And so we talked about it a little bit and we found we had a similar, she was looking to sort of help new writers get stuff going, like help lend her your backing to, to stuff to help people get in the door and develop stuff with them. And I pursued her uh, over the course of, I think, six months. Mm-hmm. And finally, she, you know, she ultimately read my stuff and we met. And that began a very a long collaboration, uh, I think like a five or six year collaboration, where ultimately Dark Oracle got made uh, with YTV and Shaftesbury and ran for two seasons. And that was really my first experience writing. Wow. Oh, no, you know what? There was Degrassi in between there. Some freelance episodes, right, for Degrassi? I did some freelance, yes. So then my other, like, big, long-standing relationship is Aaron Martin. Mm-hmm. And Aaron Martin, who co-ran Erica with me for the past four years, he and I met at a party. I always tell writers, you got to go to parties. I know, it's terrible, but you do. You have to go to parties <laughs> and meet people. Yeah. Um, we met at a party, and I think he, I thought that we connected over the fact that we both liked Buffy, but he actually liked 
me because I'd been rejected from the film center. Oh, no. <laughs> and, and Aaron has a, has a bit of a, I don't know, he's got a, he's Aaron. He's, he finds certain things appealing. He has uh-huh. like a kind of a rebellious kind of quality to him, you know? Yeah. And so he offered like to have me come in and I ended up writing a couple of just freelance, a couple of Degrassi episodes and doing some work in the story room, which was a great experience because mm-hmm. I got to see how that worked. Um, never managed to figure that out since, but <laughs> at the time it was a great experience. And then like right from there into producing and writing Dark Oracle with Heather. You know, I got to be very involved. I didn't do the sort of staff writer in a room job at any point because of the way it ended up working out. So in Degrassi, you you kind of were in the room for a few days to break the story, but then they sent you off to write your script. So so I guess... Uh, now, Heather Heather Conkey, she was actually directly involved in Dark Oracle, right? Was she... Oh, yeah. She's the executive producer. Yeah. And she, she was running it. But we... I mean, she was running it. She had all the experience. I learned everything from Heather. But... We worked totally together. Mm. You know, like, uh, we, it's not the same situation as when you're a new writer and they bring somebody in who you've never met and now you, they're going to run your show and you're going to work together. Like, we developed this from the ground up together. Mm. And yeah, and we were kind of partners in the way, in the way the whole thing was run. Yeah. Now, yeah. now it won an international Emmy Award for Best Youth Drama. It did. That was very surprising. Wow. What was that like? Well, I wasn't going to go to New York <laughs> because <laughs> it was expensive and, you know, <laughs> I didn't think we were going to win, like, at all. Uh-huh. Um, but I ended up going and because um, it was New York. Who doesn't want to go to New York? And, yeah. and my parents bullied me into it, frankly. Uh-huh. And then I'm glad they did because, you know, we won and it was it was exciting and it was a lot of fun to to be there and, and, and to win. Hmm. But But you know what? In terms of these things, like, actually doing anything for your career... Uh-huh. I don't think so. Really? Like, yeah, I don't think so. Like, I don't think awards matter. Hmm. Really, at all. They don't matter to me. Like, they don't, I don't notice any measurable difference in terms of, like, based on awards. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess, uh, when, when you're going to pitch something, it's probably more interesting to them that you create a dark oracle than the fact that it won an Emmy. Yeah, the, the best thing about the Emmy is it's sitting in my living room. It looks cool, you know? Mm-hmm. But it's not, yeah, no, it doesn't, that doesn't really mean anything to people. I don't, and I, I, as it maybe shouldn't, you know, it's more like, what's your experience? Hmm. Well, and, uh, and so, um, this Dark Oracle was, uh, it ran for two seasons and it, and it was sci fi in nature, um, I'm sure inspired a bit by your love of Buffy and, and all that sort of thing. But then you stuck a bit in sci fi when you created Being Erica. Tell me about how, being Erica started. Being Erica was, you know, I'd finished Dark Oracle and I was kind of trying to figure out what to do next. My my long goal was drama, but I wasn't quite ready to reach for drama yet. So I developed another half hour teen show mm-hmm. about a girl who goes back in time through a painting in her home. And the painting, like weather changes in the painting, lights go on and off in the house in the painting, and and it's like a portal to the past. And I pitched it to David Fortier and Ivan Schneeberg, who were at that time were just in the very beginnings of Temple Street. You know, mm-hmm. they're the co-presidents of Temple Street, and they just bought it, and they they were just kind of starting up, and they had a lot of free time. And we spent we spent a lot of time talking. We had a similar seemed to have a similar sensibility, and they said to me, "Why don't you?" 
you know, CBC's looking for a one hour. Why don't you make this into a one hour? Hmm. And I said, oh, God. And they're like, well, you know, <laughs> you, you want to do one hour. And I'm like, but, I, you know, I'm not ready. Like, I don't think I'm ready. Yeah. Um, which is always what I feel. I'm always yeah. not, like, I always don't feel ready. Because um, you're not really ready. And you know it. But then you just have to kind of go for it anyway. And it's going to be, like, painful. But you still have to go for it. So uh, that's what happened. We we ended up reconfiguring Erica to be, well, the show to be Erica, mm-hmm. which was, you know, uh, about sort of a time travel therapy show. It had a lot of themes that I'm interested in, like personal transformation and time travel and, yeah, just like people thinking about themselves and who they are and who they want to be. And so, and, and just being sort of very real, like the tone of it being sort of very real, but at mm-hmm. the same time kind of with these moments of comedy. And then we started going around and pitching it and, and nobody, nobody wanted it. Oh yeah. Which was a huge bummer. Yeah. Nobody really wanted it. And it was a pretty solid pitch and I wasn't expecting anybody to want it, but I think Dave and Ivan were, cause I wasn't expecting anything, but I think they were more experienced and just a bit kind of, they were like, oh, like we don't get it. Like why? And then, and then it's such a good pitch. And then we went to the CBC and it was like, boom. You know, we did the pitch with Tom Hastings, who initially was the development executive on the show, and he now uh, runs drama over there, and Sally Caddo. And as soon as they heard it, they were like, let's bring Fred in. Fred ran drama at the time, and, and I repitched it to Fred, and it was it was very exciting and a lot of energy. They were all clearly really responded. Wow. Um, couldn't have been more positive, and, um, and then everything moved very, very quickly from that point. Wow. I wrote the script, we shot the pilot, they ordered the series. It just all happened very quickly. Wow. Now I I I love the fact that it's there's overt religion in it. I mean, you don't see that in a lot of TV shows. Uh, this is this is a Jewish family and uh and now was any of it autobiographical? You know, it's all autobiographical and it's all not kind of. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm uh my life is very different from hers. In the you know, I'm married, I have two kids. I have a job I really like. <laughs> she struggled with her career for a yeah. very long time. But, you know, it has a lot of my views, like a lot of my views, a lot of my interests, a lot of the things that I, I think about, um, I'm interested in. A lot of the edgier content in Being Erica reflects mine and Aaron Martin's interests. You know, the the Judaism stuff obviously like reflects my background and my desire to make a Jewish care a secular Jewish character seem mm-hmm. real in a way that is recognizable to me. Yeah. And the way we would break the show is we would we would start with an issue that we were dealing with or something that somebody else we knew was was facing or struggling with or curious about and we would work work that issue through, you know. Um mm-hmm. and, and sort of explore it. The one the example I always like to use is, is jealousy. You know, we did um we did we did a whole show about about jealousy and how it's the taboo emotion of our time and you know you can say that you're mad at someone but you can't say that you're jealous of them and why is that and you know what happens if we do admit when we're jealous of other people and there would be these sort of focal themes of of each show that would go at the top of every script so everyone knew the question that that we were asking hmm. um and then built around that would be the you know, the time travel and Erica having a problem or regret and then figuring out what she was going to do about it. Very, very cool. And and uh, you have, have said before that it was really, really important, despite the, the possible sci-fi genre aspect of it, that it, that it would be really about real people, real reactions to things. Tell me a little bit about that. 
Well, a lot of times, you know, there's there's go there's just sort of traditional go to places. You know, like a Jewish person on television, like Seinfeld, or you know, it's just it's not really ever brought in. It's really tiptoed around, so we don't do that. That there's um we did like um a breakup in season two on the show between Erica and Ethan. And often in breakups on shows, my, my sort of, my vision of it in my head is like someone gets really mad and like slams a door and walks out in the middle of a conversation and then the other person like sits on the bed and cries. Mm. And, and that's not a reflection of like really any of the breakups that I've had or that of anybody, like most people I know, like if I did a poll, people I know and talked about their breakups, Mostly it goes something like this, you know, you fight and you fight and you fight and you get exhausted and then suddenly you're like, you just realize it's not working and you have like a really hard conversation and, you know, you both cry and decide you're going to break up and then after you decide you're going to break up, you have sex and then after that, you cry some more. And then, you know, like, you maybe spend the night, and then in the morning, like, exhausted and depleted, you, like, pry yourselves away from each other, and, like, somebody leaves, you know? It's, mm. it's like, it's more, it's messier, and it's more, like, drawn out, and it's more the sort of pain of the death of the relationship of losing something that, you know, you were both really invested in, but that is not working, mm. um, and is wearing you down. Whereas on television, it tends to be like someone cheats, you know, or it's just, it's just like really fast and, and it's over really quickly. And that's an easier thing to show, hmm. but it's not a, I don't think it's the most truthful thing. I mean, it's truthful in some circumstances, but it's not, it's not the majority. We, we did another episode about like a breakdown of Eric, earlier on of Erica and Ethan's sexual relationship. And it, it felt really fresh and cool to do it because it was all about like how bad the sex was. And how, like, they weren't having the kind of sex they wanted to be having. And, mm. and like, really awkward conversations and about, you know, like, Erica finding him masturbating to porn and then, like, him not wanting to talk about it. It was just, you know, it was just sort of, we, we tend to want to get the most excited about episodes that, like, you know, like that episode or the jealousy episode, move towards something that feels really really real and you can tell when it's really real because mm. everybody knows what you're talking about yeah that was the center of of the show for us you know the, all the time travel and the whatever like it, it's all fun and but without that center like making her seem like a real girl the show would just float away you know it would just be silly well and and i think it speaks volumes um, the fact that people have really responded to this this show, and I'm, I'm not just talking about, I mean, it's very highly critically acclaimed, but also around the world. I'm, I mean, people from Australia and Germany, and I mean, I I literally hear from all over the place. People are just crazy about the show. Well, you know what? It's been, I mean, it's been super gratifying. Obviously, I mean, I, we all wish we had better numbers, but because our numbers have been terrible. But the show, like the thing that happens all the time is the same. And what happens is people come up to us and say, I'm Erica. Mm. Like you get a guy who weighs like 250 pounds, who's covered in tattoos, who's in a biker gang, who said to Adam on the show, he's like, I'm Erica. Uh -huh. You get like a 65 year old man who says, I'm Erica. Uh -huh. You know, at the, at the panel that we were at, two people afterwards told me they were Erica. So that's like making the character profoundly, profoundly relatable hmm. is is really important and, and in a way not that hard because like if you take the view that is what is inside me is inside everybody and is inside everybody all over the world and if I am honest 
about, you know, what frightens me or what I want or what, like, you know, horrifies me in myself, then, then, and I put that down in an honest way, hmm. then other people will see the truth in it and will respond. Very, very cool. Well, in, outside of the content, I'd, I'd love to hear um, a bit more about how the staff was constructed. In, in particular, I, I interview a lot of writers from U.S. shows, and I know that the, the difference between the staffs in the States and the Canada, in Canada, I mean, they're, they're just run differently. Tell me about, about how your staff was run. Well, that was an utter failure on our part. Right? <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, it was. Uh-huh. So I I don't you know I'm not exactly sure how much insight I can give you there, uh-huh. and I think I think a big part of the problem you know actually pulls us back to the content because the nature of the show requires immense self disclosure to work. Mm-hmm. If you're going to write something tr- really truthful about your and that's not that's really not the job description for most screenwriters. Mm-hmm. It's to like sit in front of a group of people and be kind of painfully honest about what's going on. And and because we sort of seek to protect ourselves, you know, like mm-hmm. we're not going to we're not going to do that in a room. It's very difficult to get the kind of material that you need to make the show work the way it's supposed to work. So people didn't have trouble writing the River Rock part of the show. You know, everybody wrote Julianne and Brent and Mary and you know, like those characters and Thomas Friedkin like that whole world is very camp and it's arch and it's it's very different. It's not mm. real at all, and and that was not a problem. What was a, what was difficult was was getting the, the other part of it to to work in the way that that we wanted it to. And and part of me thinks that's just you know the more sort of specific and weird you make something, the harder it is to emulate because uh, I don't know how can someone write like you when they're not you. You know, I, I think of shows, there's many shows that I see where I'm like, I, I don't know, I couldn't write that. Yeah. You know, I couldn't write that. It, that's just, it's so it's so specific. It's so specific to that person. And so we had a lot of struggles with that. We worked with some very, very talented writers, you know. But sometimes show, certain shows are just not designed, I think, to have large staff. Mm. And I feel like ours was ultimately one of those. We went to, like, extraordinary lengths. We called up Stephen Bochco. Oh, wow. <laughs> And had like a crisis meeting on the phone, like like organized by our agents to get him to try to explain to us like what were we we were doing wrong. Wow. Yeah. So so was it? Do you think it was just that um, you and Aaron had such a, I guess, a strong connection to Erica, and was it just hard for other people to to capture her character, or was it, or was it um, the just the logistical intimacy of the room or what, what do you think it was? It just, we didn't, the, the, the show was broken between Aaron and I in mm-hmm. coffee shops around the city of Toronto. And, and it was, there was a lot of openness like between us, you know, very mm-hmm. kind of close, safe relationship there. And you make a room and that's not the same. It's yeah. not the same. So it doesn't, same sorts of things don't come out. The same sorts of things like aren't revealed and, and don't work their way into the story. You know, I also find it tricky, like, to think when there's a bunch of people in the room and different people are talking. Like, I find it sort of generally very inefficient. Mm-hmm. I don't really get it. Yeah, and and I feel like, pe- yeah, people had a hard time getting, I guess, the tone of the show. Mm. Some people did. Some some people did, you know, a little bit, like, better than others. But But ultimately, I think we felt frustrated because we didn't understand why we couldn't, we couldn't make it, make it work. 
Mm. Well, that's, that's interesting. And, it, and do you think... Like, we came up with rules for yeah. people. Like, Erica, Erica isn't funny. Like, don't write a joke for her. Don't write a single joke for her. She's not allowed to ever say anything funny. Like, we tried to sort of break it down. Mm. A lot of the things about her, uh, about the show, don't seem obvious on the surface. Now, that's true. But if you've seen the show, you don't immediately think, oh, God, she's not funny. Mm. It's true. She's not funny. She never says anything funny. She never makes a joke. <laughs> she's not witty. She's She doesn't do that. Like, she's very... Erin Karpluck makes the character funny because of what she brings to the character. But the words on the page are quite flat. Mm. Um, you know, and there's, oh, there'll be some physical comedy where she'll like trip over something when she goes into the past, but she's not, she doesn't have zingers, you mm. know? Um, so we, we did things like we tried to sort of break it down in that way. Um, but you know, listen, it's hard. Yeah. It's always hard. Well, but but you pulled it off, and, and four seasons later, um, you've got to, I mean, the U.S. and the U.K. are both um, wanting to remake it, which is interesting. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, that, you know, that's been lingering in the news for a long time. So let me just say that that is not <laughs> happening. Oh, it's not <laughs> happening. No, no, it's not. Um, I mean, I'm not sure. I can't, the British remake, I think, is still lingering out there, but the, 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 um, the U.S. version, uh, a pilot was written, um, and, you know, like so many pilots, like yeah. 70 pilots are written every year for, for each network, and, mm-hmm. uh, and it wasn't picked up. And that was, I think, now two years ago. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, so, yeah. so talk about wrapping it up. I mean, this was your story, your baby from the beginning. You did four seasons of this. Obviously, it was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears along the way. And, and now, what is it like to wrap up that story? Um, well, you know, it's wrapped up. It is wrapped up. Yeah. It's done, right? Yeah. It's over. So, um, what that was like, that was, um, well, it was, it was very rewarding, actually, mm-hmm. because Aaron and I decided at the beginning of season four that Erica, you know, felt like she was coming to the end of her journey. She was becoming a doctor. She was in training. She was going to like not be a patient anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and once that happened, it was kind of the end of the series as we, you know, sort of conceived it, um, because the show was about a girl trying to figure out her life, and here, here she was in a really different place than she'd been in four years ago. She'd really, really changed significantly, um, and it felt like the end to us. So, what's really lovely about that is that you get to, you get to say goodbye, and you get to wrap things up, and you get to give closure to uh the audience that has uh stuck with you for the four years mm-hmm. and not like leave them can like hanging after like a cancellation that oh, leaves certain threads like never to be resolved. Yeah. And it's also it's wonderful for the um for the cast, you know, who grew extremely close. Mm-hmm. I they still send me pictures like every week of like all of them. They're just all together, all like nine <laughs> of them or whatever hanging out. Yeah. Um and uh yeah, no, it was it was really good. It's it's good to know when things are um like it's time for things to end. Mm. Which was the which was the theme of the whole final episode of Erica, which is like there can be no beginning without an end. Like you need to you need to embrace the end of things. Mm. Um so then then it ended and um I guess you know last last September we wrapped and it aired uh till Christmas and now and now I'm sort of like figuring out what the next thing is that I I'm going to do that I would like to do, you know, and developing other things and You're yeah. developing something with uh, Aaron Martin for ABC? 
I'm developing something with ABC. I'm developing a one hour with ABC, and Aaron Martin and I are developing um, another one hour for CBC. Oh, for CBC with Aaron. And, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and how are those projects going? They're good. They're it's they're they've moved quite a long ways. So I was less optimistic about them like a month ago because uh-huh. I hadn't written anything yet. But um, I've written a pilot. Uh, I'd written a script for ABC, and um, and that's the heavy lifting is out of the way, and I'm happy with it, and and so are they. So that's that's great. And then um, I'm you know very excited about the one that I'm doing with Aaron, um, because oh, it's just like exactly like what we want to do together and we're mm. having a lot of fun we're having a lot of fun yeah it kind of comes out of all of our frustrations you know <laughs> we weren't <laughs> we weren't able to do on erica you know yeah. um we're putting into this one yeah so. and the one with uh, abc is another genre show are, are both of them kind of sci-fi-ish as well or or i don't know what um, you can tell me y- about them <laughs> you know what it's it's actually a bit ridiculous both of them have I don't want to say time travel, but like basically time travel. One of them is about reincarnation. Uh-huh. Um, so there's a whole, there's two time periods in that. Shocker. And, um, and the other one is about two time, about two time periods. Yeah. It's pretty, like I'm pretty focused on this time period, two time periods or more situation. Hmm. Uh, and it's just really recurs in a fairly intense way in whatever I do again and again and again. Yeah. Well, that yeah. sounds very, very fun. I should get yeah. to, uh, we do, we did have some fan questions submitted. Um, one of them is, uh, Vivi asks, uh, if being a woman working in TV, if you've found it more challenging. Um, I don't know. Women run TV in this country, I feel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I listen, I've worked with um no, I have not found it more challenging. Mm-hmm. I found being young challenging, being inexperienced challenging, but I haven't found it challenging to be a woman. Um yeah, I I find that like I work with a lot of women and men, but mm-hmm. but no, I haven't I haven't noticed that. Well, that, um, that's and, actually you know, really like, interesting because it's it's actually the exact opposite in the states. Um it, there's ageism in the states where being old is uh, is a liability, and also uh, there's a, there's a lot of male domination. But hey, good to know that yeah. uh, we don't have that problem here. <laughs> well, maybe we do. I, maybe I, but I just have never encountered it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, listen, Shaftesbury is run by Christina Jennings, and the executive was Laura Harbin, and I worked with Heather Conkey, and at YTV. Um, Oh my God, I can't believe I'm forgetting her name. The executive was a woman, and now I work at, you know, I, I, I've done all this work with Temple Street, but the, that comp, everyone's a woman there, except mm-hmm. for Dave and Ivan. Like, you know, it's, it's, there's women everywhere. So I, I, I yeah, no, I haven't, I haven't encountered that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Sherry Elwood, uh, Call Me Fitz was on the podcast yeah, a while Sherry ago. Sherry Elwood and Taza, that company is owned by, um, Taza and Mike that mm-hmm. produce it. Um, yeah, no, it's very, a lot of women everywhere. Very encouraging. Very encouraging. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And Sharon from Australia asks, was there any consideration of continuing the show past season four with Erica as the doctor and following her learning curve as it impacts her life in a different way than it did when she was a patient? I would have loved to see more of Dr. Erica. Hmm. Sorry, what's her name? Uh, Sharon. Sharon. So my feeling about that to Sharon is um, that... Uh, not to presume to know what's in Sharon's head, but I feel like I think, like Sharon thinks 
she would have loved to see that, mm-hmm. but that actually that would break in order to make that work. It would break so completely with the show and the format and what she knows and loves about the show that mm. she wouldn't actually like it. Um, because in that show, Dr. Tom is not present at all or very, very minor in the background. Erica is no longer the center of the show. The mm. patients are and, um, or whoever her patient is and she becomes like the Dr. Tom. It just, the whole thing shifts, um, and not in a way that I think people would want to see. People come because they want to follow Erica's. She even, Sharon even said so. I want to follow Erica's journey, like mm. as a doctor. But you wouldn't be following Erica's journey. You know, you'd be following, the format just isn't, isn't set up for that. Um, you, you, you know, it's the present and then you go back in the past and then, a, like, and that's so, it's maybe invisible in a weird way to a, an audience member, but that's really what the bones of the show. Um, it would just be a totally different TV show. So I know I I didn't think seriously about doing that because I didn't see a way to do that that would make any sense. Well, it it is a wonderful opportunity when you can graciously end a show. Uh, I mean, it's mm-hmm. such a such a pain when shows don't have a chance to end. But um, mm-hmm. speaking about ending, we're we're getting close to the end of our time here. But what we All always right. end up with is advice to people who are breaking in specifically into television writing. Um, you, you recently spoke at the Toronto Screenwriting Conference. How important do you think these types of events are? I mean, obviously, a number of events and parties and things played in your development. Um, I think they're critical. I, uh, all of my um, relationships um, I made and built through uh, conferences, through, you know, I went to Banff a bunch of times, through... Uh, industry parties, writer guild, writers guild parties, you know, um, talking to people is really, is really important, you know, um, finding people that, that's how you find people that you want to work with. And you know more about who you want to work with from talking to somebody than from like what their credits are. Mm. Uh, I, I gave a bunch of advice and I'm not remembering any of it in an article recently, but, um, I think, you know, I think there's a lot of advice floating around and, uh, it's important to take advice if you're going to take advice from people who are successful doing the thing you want to do mm. rather than from people who haven't done it um, or who are doing something else because you can get, you know, like advice is freely given. Uh, sometimes you'll find that uh, the advice that you get from someone who's successful doing the thing you want to do might be kind of counterintuitive or contradict like the thing that, that everybody says you should do. Um, and I found that a bunch of times. So, yeah, there's some advice. And, and what are you looking for in in a writer that's that uh, you want to put on your staff? Um, I'm looking for. What am I looking for? I'm looking for so many. I'm looking for a bunch of things. I'm looking for somebody who has a very high standard for their work, like who can tell when something's not good. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, it feels like, can't tell when something isn't good. They think things are good enough that just aren't. Um, I'm looking for somebody, and I guess with that, somebody who's willing to work very hard to make their stuff good and hold themselves to a really high standard. Um, I'm looking for somebody who can be emotionally honest um, and and sort of like dig into the truth of the scene rather than um, go kind of the e- the easy route because that's Im- that's kind of important in the shows that I like to do. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, like, and talent, which is uh, something that is, 
you know, kind of there or not there. And and do you like to read specs or write or read pilots or or a mixture? Um. Yeah, I like to read specs. I like to read original uh, original work as well. Both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Well, you've been very generous with your time, and I really, really appreciate you taking the time here. Um, I know uh, that I would be very excited to see your new shows coming, and, and so please make sure that you send word uh, if there's any new positive developments with uh, with those shows. I'm sure you're going to have a lot of fans wanting to follow you to your new shows. Oh, well, thank you so much, Gray. Thank you for inviting me. It's been It's been a pleasure. Cool. Okay. Well, best of luck to you. Thanks. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. I can usually tell the difference between when somebody's using a an effect in Photoshop and actually using a lens that creates blur or creates focus effects. So aesthetically, I think it's more pleasing to create it from a lens. And also creating it on site in camera, um, it just it has a way of clarifying your vision and making the images stronger, I think, because you're creating exactly what you want at the time on site. So I like the Lens Baby products because they're, they're different and you get to play with blur and focus in different ways that you, you can't with other types of lenses. I've enjoyed that a lot and I enjoy the range of different optics that they provide because you can do so many different things with them and create different looks, have control over blur and focus in different ways. And these new lenses that are coming out I think are really exciting because they expand the potential for photographers and the arsenal that we have to work with to create the images that we dream of and want to make reality. I really love working with focus and being able to tilt and shift focus and the ability that gives me as part of my visual language to focus the the viewer's attention on particular areas in an image. I also like the fact that I can control the blur and control what's out of focus and I think blur and things out of focus are oftentimes just as beautiful as things that are in focus. So those are Um, reasons that I use different lenses like lens babies or a tilt shift lens or a view camera for different series that I work on. I'm really excited about the Edge 80. I've been asking for this lens for a long time from Lens Baby because it's a way for me to work with a digital camera and create effects that I could only previously create with a 4x5 or a lens of that sort on bigger cameras. We can create two different looks with the Edge 80. We can use it like a normal lens and just focus it parallel to the digital sensor, or we can tilt it and use that slice of focus within the image to uh, create blur or create focus on particular areas in the image. With a tiltable lens, we can tilt the lens around, and so our focus plane also becomes tilted at an angle. And so that allows us to focus our attention on particular areas in the image, say, for instance, on the eyes or a piece of jewelry. Um, It also allows us to create blur and create really beautiful effects with blur that we couldn't if we were working uh, with a straight parallel lens. With the Edge 80 we have three controls for how we can control the focus. So first we can tilt the lens and shift that um, plane of focus at an angle. The second control we have is working with our aperture by adjusting the aperture to say f22, we'll have a much deeper depth of field at that angle. 
or opening it wide to 2.8, we have a really shallow depth of field, a really beautiful blur coming off the edges of that focus plane. And then we can focus the focus ring and move that plane of focus in and out, or forward and backward within the image as well. When you're working with a tilt and shift lens, you have to be real careful about how you meter things and how you expose your image. Because as you tilt the lens, the meter in the camera doesn't read the, the light properly anymore. So I'll frequently shoot, and then I'll check my histogram on my image in my LCD screen to be sure I have the proper exposure, and then I'll shoot some more and test it again. It's also really important that you bracket your exposure, and I also like to bracket my focus because it's sometimes it looks like something's in focus and you're just slightly out of focus. All right, we turn around to your right a little bit. Using selective focus is a lot of fun, and it gives us a lot more creative freedom in how we, we focus an image or blur out particular things or focus the viewer's attention on particular parts of the scene or the clothing or the jewelry or the accessories or the face. I like Lens Baby's products because they expand the, the possibilities for my imagery. So I have more tools to work with to create more interesting images and to create something a little different. I think the images speak for themselves. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web.